Good morning again. We are continuing our series this morning in Genesis. It's called Father Abraham, looking at the life of Abraham to prepare ourselves uh, for Romans in the fall. Uh, So we just have a few more weeks in Genesis, and then we'll be moving into Romans. If you want to follow along with us today, it'll be page 12 in the black Bibles that are under the chairs. Uh, It'll be Genesis chapter 18 and chapter 19, if you have your own Bible. So Genesis 18 and 19 today, I'm going to have to hurry because we're covering two chapters. Uh, Page 12, Genesis chapter 18 and 19. Um, Many years, thank you. Many years ago, there was a movie that came out that was a legal drama, a famous scene in the movie where the lawyer is badgering one of the witnesses um, and pressing him to get him to confess uh, to a crime, really. And he's pressing him and pressing him, saying, I want answers. The guy says, I'll give you answers. He says, I want the truth. And the famous line, you can't handle the truth, right? Half of you knew it. That was good. Very good. Um, So the Jack Nicholson character is this kind of like scary character, and Tom Cruise is pressing him and pressing him. And in that interchange, part of the truth that Jack Nicholson says Tom Cruise can't handle is that The justice that he exercised in his mind of justice was something that might be grotesque to some people, yet it was necessary. And often when we look at Scripture, we have a question of, is that what God's doing? Is is what God's doing, is is it a kind of justice that at the same time we find to be grotesque, as the Jack Nicholson character argued in that movie? Or is it real justice? Is it genuine justice? And we have to adapt ourselves to what is justice? What is right? What is wrong? Uh, We're we're calling the sermon this morning, Grace or Judgment? And so my question for you would be, as you read the scriptures, what's the Bible story basically about? Is it about grace or judgment? Is it about God's mercy or his justice? Which is it? What do you think? Shout out an answer. Both. Good answer. All right. First service passed the test as well. Really, it is, it is both, but we've got to work our way there, right? So you can't know that yet. Let's look at the text, and we'll work our way there. So grace or judgment. I'm going to read um, the first verse, and I'm going to read a few more verses, and I'm going to jump to the end because um, we've got two chapters here. So chapter 18, verse 1, And the Lord appeared to him, talking about Abraham, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat, of the day. So we have a story again that's an appearance of God to Abraham, which is again placing Abraham in the prophetic role, right? We don't see God every day, but God appears and reveals things to us. He reveals to all people at all time through creation that he's there and he's powerful and he's awesome. So that's very clear to us in scripture. Through creation, he's always revealing himself. But then we have a category called special revelation where God gives specific instructions to people, and we usually term those people prophets or apostles, and we have their writings in this book. We would say we have that special revelation right here. So God's appearing to Abraham, giving him specific or special revelation. Skip down now to verse 16. Chapter 18, verse 16. The men, there were three men that appeared, God and two angels is the best way we can describe that. The men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them and set them on their, uh, to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? 
For I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, here's what he's going to reveal. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now we'll skip down to the end. Spoiler alert. I'm going to give the end of the story now. Chapter 19, verse 27. We'll skip down to the end, and then we'll work our way back through the details. So chapter 19, verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, what we just read. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow, overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So the end of the story, Lot saved. Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. Smoke is rising up. This is a, a devastating judgment on these cities. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us because I think we've got just a lot of particular difficulties in the text for us today. We're in a culture that is uh, very unnerved by the idea of God executing any kind of judgment. That just kind of naturally we recoil against that. So we need help because of our cultural uh, understanding to hear what God wants us to hear this morning. So let me pray for us, ask the Spirit to help us. God, we pray that you would speak to us today. We thank you for your grace and your kindness that you've revealed in Jesus, who when we were lost, chased after us. He left the 99. He came after us as the one stray that wandered away, and he chased us because, because you love us, Lord. So we know you love us, and now we pray that you'd help us to understand your judgment as well, that you'd give us eyes to see, that you would help us to understand this thing that seems so grotesque, frankly, to our culture. Help us to see who you are, that you are just, understand better what you're doing. We pray for your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what I want to do to try to kind of divide up what we're looking at today is I, I broke chapter 18 into two pieces. We'll kind of look at the first half of chapter 18, which I would say is how we respond to grace. What does it look like to respond to God's grace? Second half of chapter 18 uh, is the debating or the questioning of God's justice. So we see Abraham debating God or questioning God, asking him for clarity on his justice and how that's going to work in line with his grace. And then the final uh, section will be just chapter 19 all together, um, and that we will call grace and judgment. Because what we're going to see there is we're going to see judgment. We're going to see the wiping out of Sodom and Gomorrah, but we also will see some grace and some mercy in the midst of that. So the, the first section, we'll call this responding to grace. And as we look at how Abraham and Sarah respond to grace, ask yourself, how do you respond to God's grace, to his kindness that he extends to you, to me, to all of us. So chapter 18, verse 1, we, we already read verse 1 earlier. It said, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And just a little linguistic note for those of you that like the linguistic details. Whenever it's all caps, L-O-R-D, that is the Hebrew name, the 
the very personal covenant name that God reveals himself with to uh, Moses, which we would often pronounce Yahweh or Jehovah. You know, there's some debate as to how to actually pronounce it, but it basically is the I am name. I am, or I will be who I will be. God's kind of uh, self-existentness, that he's faithful, that he is. So this is the Lord, this covenant Lord, this God, the creator of heaven and earth. He's revealing himself to Abraham. Verse 2 says, talking about Abraham, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And so just want to say this real quickly. We, we don't always understand what to do with God revealing himself in human form to people. We know on this side of Jesus that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And so often we take that theology that we know to be true in the New Testament and we'll use that to kind of understand things like this in the Old Testament. So a lot of theologians would say, if Yahweh is talking face-to-face with someone in the Old Testament and he looks like a man, that was probably Jesus as we understand him. Um, I would just say we're not really sure because the text doesn't really detail it, but that's a, that's a helpful way to understand it because um, if you look at the other story like in uh, Exodus where Yahweh appears to Moses, he's like, well, you can't look right at me or it'll fry your face off, right? He doesn't use those exact words, but it's like, you couldn't handle me, right? So what God does is he hides Moses in some rocks and Moses gets to like look through a crack in the rocks and see God's, the backside of his glory as it swishes by. You know, so it's like, you can't really fully see God face to face and survive that except Jesus. So theologically, it makes sense that, that we would say, okay, this was actually in some sense Jesus appearing to him. But either way, we would say God is one God and three persons, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So Abraham's really seeing God and somehow he's really seeing God without being destroyed, seeing him face to face as a person. So we think this is God, and then two angels or messengers with him. So he sees these three men. Now, sorry, that was a long aside. Going back to verse 2. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Um, In the ancient Near East, people would bow to great kings as well. So he's showing normal ancient Near East hospitality, right? He's showing normal kindness. He also understands this to be God, so he's bowing to him as God, but also he's treating him with respect the way any good person would in this culture. He goes on to show further signs of respect and hospitality. He said, O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, don't pass by your servant. Basically saying, if I've really found favor with you, if you are going to show me grace, please stay with me. Can we spend some time together? And so in verse 4, it says, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. And so they said, do as you have said. So he basically says, let me just do the basic, just show you some very minimal hospitality. Can I please bring some water to wash your feet? That was a basic in that culture. And can I have some you know, water to drink and a morsel of bread, right? So he's, he's speaking very humbly. And then what we'll see is they say, okay, and then he goes and he throws into action really a great feast. He's really honoring them with his hospitality. So it goes on and he says, verse 6, Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of fine flour. Those are measurements of fine flour. Knead it, make cakes. And then he ran to the herd and he took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he'd prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Um, There's a lot of conversation I've read over the years where people get kind of distracted about the cultural differences because there are cultural differences, right? These people didn't have microwaves, right? 
They didn't have microwaves, so you're thinking, man, that, that must have been a real pain to fix all this food and knead the bread and make the cakes and prepare the fattened calf and all this stuff. And I would say, well, yeah, it was, but don't, don't let yourself get too distracted by that because these were wealthy people. They had servants. You know, he gave the calf to the young man. Who, you know, he had a barbecue pit, like, ready to go. Um, he had the equipment he needed. Again, they don't have microwaves, but they had plenty of equipment by their standards. They had servants. They had help. They were able to do this. And so really the key is not how hard it was that they did this, but that it was a, a big, beautiful, a beautiful meal, right? It was just a really nice thing. They were showing hospitality. So they were honoring their guests. And so the way I would phrase it in line with my kind of the phrasing of my main point is, this is a response to God's grace. This is Abraham responding with hospitality, with welcoming, with even, you might say, extravagance to God's grace. God comes to reveal himself to, God, uh, to Abraham, and Abraham's like, let me bless you, let me give you the best that I have, let me honor you, let me respect you, let me show you hospitality. So again, a question to ask ourselves is, is that your, is that your posture towards God as, as he reveals himself to you in different ways? I don't think he, he walks up and knocks on the door of your tent, right? But God reveals himself to us in specific ways. Are we accepting to that revelation? I would say the most clear, concrete way for us to understand God's revelation today, again, is here. We've got his prophetic revelation recorded for us. Are you receiving it? Are you taking it into your home? Are you blessing it and saying, I I want more of you, God? What is your posture towards God's grace to you? The text goes on in verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? We'll get a different response now. He said, she's in the tent. Verse 10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So again, remember, we keep seeing these stories. If you're new with us, God keeps repeating this again and again. I'm going to bless you give you a son, all the nations of the world will be blessed through your descendants, Abraham. Galatians and Romans tells us that we who trust God and trust in what Jesus has done for us are the sons and daughters of Abraham. So we are a part of that extended story of God rescuing the world in Christ, reversing all the evil of the fall. We're a part of that story. So Abraham and Sarah would have heard this in line with the promise made in Genesis 3.15, where after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden for rebelling against God, God said, but someday a son is going to be born to Eve that's going to crush evil once and for all. So that's this promise made in Genesis 3.15. The story picks up here. They would have been hearing it in light of that. God's going to send a human, a son of Eve, to save the world. All these stories are connected. It's one story of redemption. And Abraham and Sarah are hearing it in light of that. The problem is, though, They're really old, right? We've talked about that. They're beyond childbearing years. And so he says, I'm going to come back. Sarah's going to have a son. Back in verse 10 here. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Guys, you may not know what that means, but ladies, I think you know what that means. Um, She can't have kids anymore, basically, right? It's a euphemism here. She's no longer, she can't reproduce any longer. Verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? So she's, I mean, this is a very earthy, you know, telling of the story, right? Like, really? I'm way too old to have kids. Can I have that kind of pleasure? I don't think that's going to happen, right? She's just saying that's not, that's just, that's beyond weird, right? She's 90, Abram's about 100. They're saying that's not, that's not going to happen. She laughs. 
And again, back to verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? So remember, she's in the other room. She's in the other room listening, eavesdropping, we call it. And God's having a conversation with Abram. And, and God says, why did Sarah laugh? And uh, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord, God asks? Now, this is what we call a rhetorical question. And I would say, just so you know, in case you're confused, the answer is no. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And that's a very important verse. And I would just kind of hold on to this. I'm gonna, we, we're going to cover a lot of territory to, today. Hold on to verse 14. This is a really key verse for this whole section, for these whole two chapters, as a matter of fact. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Because God's going to come to you in your moments of greatest frustration and weakness and suffering and abuse and shame, and you're going to be tempted to say, God can't overcome this. Like when I was 13, I thought God could save me from my own sin, but I don't know if he can save me from my suffering or from my sickness or from my broken relationships or from the ongoing selfishness in my own heart. And we're going to doubt if God is strong enough. And God's asking you right now, just like he asked Abraham and Sarah back then, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer is no. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. So verse 14, key verse, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Verse 15, but Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. I know that, that always makes me laugh, that little exchange. I'm just like, just, just know, guys, I think this is a really important thing to know in your prayer life. Know that when uh, you think something or say something, whether you're close in proximity to God or you're far away, God knows what you're thinking. God knows what you're saying, okay? You can't lie to God. So here's a really peculiar response where Sarah's like, oh, no, 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 I didn't, I didn't laugh. No, you did laugh. He's <laughs> like, nope, you did. I called you on it. There, end of story. There's not a lot of elaboration. It's just that simple. And I think that's a really important truth for us to take home. I think this dramatically affects our prayer life. How do you respond to God's grace? Do you, are you inviting God into your life? Are you like, come on, God, come spend time with me. Come talk to me. I want your revelation. I want to be close to you. I want to be near you. I want to hear you. I want to listen to you. Or are you like, man, I don't know about this God saying I'm going to have a baby. That's crazy. I don't, I don't you know, that's just nuts. And you laugh. And then he says, why are you laughing? You're like, I didn't laugh. He hears you. He knows you're saying this. He knows you're, you're thinking this. So here's a way to think about this and how you respond to God's grace. If you're having those thoughts of, this is crazy, this is too hard, God can't fix this, God can't conquer this, tell him. He already knows, right? So, so two different postures. One posture is you're hiding it off in a corner behind a tent door, and you're denying what God thinks or knows already about you. The other is you're just bringing it to him. You're saying, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. And you start to say it out loud, and you start to... It's prayer. You start to articulate, God, I, I know nothing's too hard for you, but this seems too hard. God, help me to understand that. And, and you can be honest with him. Like, you don't have to wait until you have all the right theological words and have everything cleaned up language-wise before you talk to God. You can just tell him what you're thinking because he knows already. And some of us think, well, if he knows already, I shouldn't talk to him. That, that's exactly backwards. Because he knows already, he wants you to talk to him. He wants you to talk to him. 
We're told that again and again throughout Scripture. He wants you to bring your, your concerns. Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. So, so tell him, respond to his grace by telling him, God, I don't, I don't see how that's going to work. I, I get that you're gracious. I believe that at some level, but in this situation, I don't know how that's going to work. I grabbed a picture of a kid laughing here just to um, show us what that can look like. Often when God tells us things, sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, sometimes we just go numb. I know for me, the way I'm wired, I, I struggle with just numbness, right? Like, I just think, I don't know how that's going to work. God, I don't know how you're going to do this. And so I go into this circular thinking mode where I try to solve problems myself and I don't really bring it to the Lord. Bring it to the Lord. Tell him, this is the mess, God. You already know about it, but I'm going to talk to you about it out loud. I'm going to ask you to help me. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is a great, great passage. Don't, don't stay in your anxiousness, but bring your concerns, bring your laughter, bring your anger, bring your all of that stuff. Bring that to God. And he'll give you his peace. Don't just stay in anxiousness. Don't just stay in your depression. Don't just stay in your anger. Wherever it is, you're stuck. Remember, is anything too hard for the Lord? No. So go ahead and bring it to him. Your situation isn't so hard that he doesn't know how to deal with it. You just don't know how he's going to deal with it. So, so talk to him about that. Bring, bring that issue to him. Don't stay in circular thinking, wondering, and hemming and hawing and trying to solve it yourself. But, but break that cycle and respond to his grace by saying, God, I know nothing's too hard for you, but this seems too hard for you, and I don't know what to do with this, and I don't, I don't know how to think about this. Will you help me to know how to think about this? Will you help me to know how to feel about this? Will you show me what you're doing in this situation? The next thing we see is Abraham now questioning God's judgment. Verses 16 through 33 um, I'll go ahead and read this to you. Commentators are divided on this. Not really divided. But I, I think it's a both and. Commentators would say, at some level, this is like a uh, negotiation that takes place in the marketplace. And then at another level, this is also like a lawyer before a judge. And so really both are kind of happening here. Um, look at verse 16. The men set out from there. They looked towards Sodom. It says looking down towards Sodom because they were up in the high highlands south of Jerusalem, looking down into the valley towards where Sodom was in a valley. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So Abraham fills this role that really we, we fill a similar role. We looked at the quotes from Peter last week that says we are a royal priesthood, a chosen people. We're, we're made to praise God and uh, declare how great he is, his marvelous works. We're a special people by faith in what God is doing for us through Jesus, and we are to have this special role of living out justice in the world. We should actually be righteous, and when people look at us, they should have a picture, a broken picture for sure, but a, but a picture nonetheless of of God's goodness and his righteousness. They should see and get a little taste of that in our lives. And so here God's saying, that's what Abraham is supposed to be too. He is supposed to walk in righteousness. So I'm going to share with him about the way I'm going to execute this judgment. And this is going to help him. And so we see this being worked out in the discussion then that follows. Abraham as someone that's going to walk in righteousness, really needs to better understand God's righteousness. So he's going to ask him a lot of questions. I don't think he's being disrespectful. I think he's, again, 
It's a model of prayer, asking God, like, God, how does, how does this work? How, how are you being righteous in this way? And what are the boundaries of your righteousness? And, and what does it look like for you to be just? And so it goes on, verse 20. He decides to tell Abraham, okay, this is what I'm doing. Verse 20, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And so God has said, I've heard that Sodom is very evil, and I'm going to go down and check it out. Now, obviously, again, we have some theological questions here. God knows all things, right? So what does it mean when God goes to check things out? I I think there's a pattern of God showing grace upon grace, like giving people one more chance, and giving people one more chance, and giving people one more chance. And that's a continual pattern we see in Scripture of God always going the extra mile to give people an opportunity to repent and to turn from their sin. So that's a theme we see throughout Scripture. There's also an interesting theme here where the language is echoing what happened in Genesis chapter 11, which is the Tower of Babel story. And in that story, all mankind is banding together to build a tower up and kind of become their own gods and build their way up to heaven. And in the text, it's kind of an ironic twist where God is like looking down having a hard time seeing what the little ants are doing, trying to build their way to heaven, right? And so he decides to come down. And so this language is used again and again to paint a picture of the posture and relationship between man and God, right? And so it's not always necessarily purely physical, but it's showing us something about who God is and who we are. We're little, and we're down here, and God's big and righteous and holy, and he's up here. And and what's really cool is we always see God coming down to us, Mankind is always trying to build their way up to God, and we always fail. We never make it. And so if if you have a confidence in reason and science and your own education, well, that's a way for you to build your way up to God. You may not call it God, but you're trying to build yourself up to supreme achievement or whatever you would want to call it. If you're involved in really any kind of religion, they're, they're all different forms of trying to build our way up to God. And in the gospel story and throughout Scripture, we see a God who comes down to us, a God who comes down to us. And sometimes, even when he comes down to us, we deny him and say, I don't want any part of you. And that's part of what we're seeing here in the Sodom and Gomorrah story. So he says, I'm going to go down, and I'm going to check it out for myself. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abram, we're in verse 22, but Abram still stood before the Lord. Verse 23, then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So this is where he's questioning God's justice. Like, God, are you really just? Because you might, by destroying an entire city, you might, you might destroy the righteous and the wicked at the same time. And is that really right? And is that really okay? Verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So here again, I I don't believe uh, Abraham has stepped over into disrespect, but he is genuinely questioning God. And in our prayer life, when we have concerns about God's justice, we should ask him. Don't deny it and and lie about it or just descend into circular thinking where you're going to solve your problem by yourself and you don't need God to help you. Take your problems to God. Talk to him about your concerns. If you feel like something's unjust, you talk to God about it. You don't run the other way. And again, the pattern in Psalms is so clear and so helpful. When we read the Psalms, we see that kind of debate and negotiation and questioning going on with God. It's a pattern for us in how we would pray and relate to God. 
So he's saying, God, surely, surely since you're just, you're not going to do things that are not just, right? And that's a reasonable question. And he goes on in verse 26. The Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. God is saying, basically the subtext is, you don't realize how bad it's gotten in Sodom. Yeah, if there are 50 righteous people, I'll spare the city. And now we've got this negotiation that keeps going. Abraham in verse 27, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Again, showing his humility before God. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I'll not destroy it if I find 45 people there that are righteous. Abraham keeps going. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So he stops at 10, and and most commentators think 10 is like the basic unit of community. Um, Helpful to think about it in family concepts, right? Uh, We as modern Americans are very individualistic, so we don't like the idea of being punished for the sins of our community, right? Raise your hand if you like that idea. Yeah, I want to get punished for the sins. You don't have to raise your hands. It's okay. But most of us don't like that, right? And so we need to recognize that throughout history, there are cultures that are very community-oriented, and there are cultures that are very individualistically oriented. And we see both in Scripture. We see in Scripture a sense in which it is right, or at least okay, to be judged or lumped in with a community. And that's hard for us because we're Americans. And Americans, we are way over on the individualistic category, right? I talked a couple of weeks ago about acknowledging the sins of our community. That's just a basic biblical concept, right? And people get bothered when I talk about that, especially when we talk about racial injustice, because we want to think in individualistic terms. But, but we can see it probably most clearly when we just talk at the family level, right? Like, has your family ever done anything that's affected you? Well, yeah. I mean, bad things can happen in your family because your family did bad things and that can affect you in bad ways. So you as an individual can be hurt because of the behavior of your family. Or you as an individual can be blessed because of the behavior of your family. So when we think about it just in family terms, I think it's a little easier for us to grasp that we are individuals, and I think it's proper and even biblical that our law system wants to judge us based on our individual choices. I think, again, that's a biblical idea, but just recognize as Americans we're way over on the individualistic end of the spectrum. We kind of need to wrestle with this. I don't even know that I have all the answers for you. I just want to kind of push you towards recognize that the Bible is more community-oriented than we are and press yourself to ask questions really kind of like Abraham's doing here. Like, okay, God, what what does this mean? What does community judgment mean in comparison uh, to community righteousness? And how are you going to judge what's right and wrong? What's really interesting is we see this whole thing played out in Romans chapter 5. We'll, you know, we'll get to this in the fall when we look at Romans. But in Romans, it says basically all of humanity is categorized in one of two races or tribes, right? So we often get concerned about the you know, 20 different races or ethnicities in this room. But in the scripture, there's just two. There's two. 
There's the tribe of Adam, natural man, doing things on our own. We don't need God. We'll rebel. We'll be, we'll be our own gods. And then there's the tribe or the race of Jesus. Two federal representatives, two heads, two tribal chiefs. So the question is, which tribe do you want to belong to? And most theologians think that it's just kind of, the surface is just being scratched here as Abraham is asking these questions. Like, God, how is your justice work? And will people really be judged? What if there's some righteous people there? Will they still be judged? And God's saying, if there's 10 righteous people there, I won't, I won't destroy the city. But it turns out there's not that many righteous people there. So as I said, some people say this is like debating in the marketplace. I grabbed a picture of a lawyer making a case in a courtroom. Um, most of you have probably seen a courtroom either live or on TV or something. Uh, the lawyer makes the case. And here we have Abraham arguing a case according to what he believes to be God's own standards of justice. So as you grow in your understanding of what Scripture says about God, um, you'll learn more about who God says he is, and then you'll bump up against real-life situations where you're like, God, I don't, like you said you're this, but this situation is hard for me, and I don't understand how you can be this and how this can be happening at the same time. And again, don't, don't just like hide that and run away from God. Take that to God. Both of these sections, I think, is pushing us to pray honestly and to wrestle with God and say, God, I, don't, I, I see that you're just. I see that you're gracious, but I don't understand how that's manifested in this situation. Can you help me? Can you help me to see this? Can you show me and bring those issues to God? He's not going to automatically drop a leaflet from heaven and just answer your question explicitly in the moment, but he's going to help you grow as you, as you bring your issues to him. Again, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says he's going to give you a supernatural peace. And sometimes biblically and circumstantially, he's going to give you wisdom that will actually answer the question too. In James, we're told, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask the Lord, and he'll give to you because he's generous. So don't hide from him because you don't think he's gracious. Bring your concerns to him because you know he's just and you know he's gracious. So now we've got chapter 19, and I've titled this section Grace and Judgment. And really, chapter 19 is a hard chapter about judgment. Remember earlier in chapter 18, God said, I'm going to go down to see if what I heard is really true. I've heard that there's some really grave, serious sin going on here. And just so we know, to kind of clarify it up front, often homosexuality is seen as the sin of Sodom. And it's kind of punted around like a football among theologians, because there's some theologians that want to argue that's not that big a deal, and others that like, no, it is a bad bad thing, and this is how I would kind of state or define the biblical stance on this, um, that all sin is sin, that all sin is sin, and homosexuality is one sin among many that we as humans commit. And that it's not necessarily a worse sin than other sins, but is sometimes held up as a cultural manifestation of a, cultural, of a culture that has gotten farther and farther away from God. And so I think that kind of confuses us because it is, Romans chapter 1, Paul does seem to lift it up as, yeah, look at this. This is this culture that's degraded itself into unnatural relationships. And he's kind of starting pulling in the religious people who are going, yeah, it's really bad. And then in chapter 2, he turns his guns on the religious people and he says, and you're just as bad. So so in a sense, he does start off and Paul says, and I think other places in scripture, uh, Ezekiel uh, hold on, it's Ezekiel 16, talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. Talk about this as a manifestation of really bad wickedness and sin. But it also says, all sin is sin. 
So chapter 1, pagan, rebellious, unchurched sin is sin. Chapter 2 of Romans, and churchy, religious sin is just as bad. So that builds us to the peak of Paul's arguments in Romans 3.23, where he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Our only hope is Jesus. Those of us that are religious and thought we had it all together because we practiced traditional morality, we're still selfish. We still deserve judgment. We're still sinners. We still stab people in the back. And those of us that were rebellious and following our own heart and rejecting traditional morality, also deserving judgment. We're all deserving judgment. So that's kind of the big picture that I think Scripture paints. In Ezekiel chapter 16, it names the sin beneath the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in Ezekiel 16, it says it this way. It says in Ezekiel 16, 49, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. So some people in order to argue that homosexuality is no big deal, would say, see, homosexuality has nothing to do with it. And I would say, no, all sin is sin, and that was the sin beneath the sin. So if you struggle with sexual immorality, the scripture would say, well, really, underneath that, you're struggling with pride. You're struggling with selfishness. You're struggling with the desire to be your own God and to find pleasure in whatever way. You want to find pleasure and reject God's rights to tell you what's right and wrong. Again, no matter what sin you struggle with, the ultimate issue is, Who's going to be God? Martin Luther said it so helpfully when he talks about the Ten Commandments. He says, before we violate any of the other Ten Commandments, we violate commandment number one first. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So whenever something else becomes more important to you than what God thinks about you, then you're going to start violating the other commandments. Then I'm going to start violating the other commandments. Because ultimately, it's about us being like Adam and Eve saying, "I, I don't want to obey you anymore. I want to be my own God. So chapter 19, how are we doing? All right. I can read this in like a minute. It's just 27 verses. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. So similar behavior, right, that Abraham gave, uh, showing this kind of hospitality. He said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. Lot knows how bad the town is, and he's like, no, 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 that's not going to work. He pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people of the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Uh, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, don't act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. So here, just a, a disgusting interaction, right? They're, they're coming and, and wanting to, to physically, sexually take advantage of these men, these angels, these visitors. And Lot's like, oh, that would be so horrible, you know. I, I couldn't handle that. I'm going to just give them my daughters to take advantage of my daughters. And so just on all sides, we're repulsed. We're disgusted by the story. And that's where some people would argue, again, that, Really, it's not, homosexuality is not the main issue here, and I, I would agree it's not the main issue here. I mean, this is just all kinds of sin happening here. It, it is one of the sins that's happening here, but it's not the only sin. That's not all this is about. There's all kinds of horrible things going on in this story. He says, please don't do this. I beg you. Behold, I have two daughters. Verse 9, he says, but they said, stand back 
And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and drew near to break the door down. And so they're basically saying to Lot, you're not really one of us. You came from somewhere else. How dare you tell us what to do? Again, kind of the, the spirit of the age that we live in today. No one gets to tell someone else what to do. There is no right and wrong. There's just what we think is right in our community or someone else's community. Verse 10, but the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. So here it's talking about the angel or messenger men who this is starting to show us, yeah, these are definitely some kind of supernatural beings because it says in verse 11, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone in the city, bring them out of this place, for you're about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Um, Just one of the, the big elephants in the room is God gets to judge sin. And I would just encourage you, again, as I've said and marked again and again, take that to the Lord. Pray about that, wrestle with that, because we're in a time and culture where we don't really believe it anymore. We're in a time in history where we just don't think judgment should happen, or if there is any kind of judgment, we only think our pet sin should be judged, right? There's just one really bad thing we think should be judged. What's often interesting in our culture is we should tolerate everything and not call anything a sin, and if you're not tolerant, that should be judged, right? That's where the death penalty comes out intolerance. And so every culture has something that we hold up and say, this is the really bad sin that needs to be judged. And the Bible has this worldview. Again, it's hard for us to stomach, but recognize part of that's just because where we live and who we are, that God gets to judge. God can destroy the wicked, and that's a part of his justice. It's not comfortable for us, but it's a reality of how God reveals himself in Scripture. So he says, I'm going to judge this place. I'm going to destroy it. Verse 14, Lot went out, said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place. The Lord's about to destroy the city, but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside of the city. I'm going to stop there because, again, that's another key verse. We see God destroying the city. We see God destroying the city, but because he's being merciful, he's saving people out of the midst of that destruction. And the Scriptures tells us that these pictures where God judges, judges evil are pointing us to a future where God is going to ultimately judge all mankind. The apostles tell us that Jesus is actually that judge that by dying and then rising from the dead, Jesus has been qualified as the righteous one, as the really just one, as the judge of the universe to judge the living and the dead. And so we have this God who's revealed himself to us in creation. We know he's made all things. We know he's great. We know he's good. Romans 1 tells us that we owe him our allegiance because we know he's there. And then we're told in the gospel that he reveals himself to us as a forgiving God who took our sins upon himself on the cross. And then in the book of Acts, we're told, and this Jesus is coming back to judge all wickedness 
And you can either belong to the tribe or the community of those that want to do life on your own apart from God and face judgment, or you can be a part of the community that says, I deserve judgment, but I know you're gracious. Will you save me because of your mercy out of, out of this judgment, this greater judgment that is taking place? So that's what we see with the angels. It says, because God was merciful to Lot, he saved him, but then Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. As we think about um, all that's going on in this text, I just wanted to finish with 1 John 2.1. 1 John 2.1 is a great verse for us to kind of see again the picture of God as a judge and really as Jesus as our lawyer, as our advocate. 1 John 2.1, John, who's writing that, the Apostle John says, uh, little children do not sin. Little children, I'm writing to you, he says, things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and he, he knows they will if you've read the whole book, right? We have an advocate with our Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So he's saying, we do have an advocate. We, we have someone who speaks up for us when we sin, and it's Jesus Christ. It goes on in verse 2 and says, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is this word that means he makes the Father pleased with us. It's often translated as atonement, right? It's, it's the idea of the cross, that on the cross, all of our sins were placed on Jesus, and all of Jesus' righteousness was given to us so that our, our heavenly Father is pleased with us, so that by faith in what Jesus has done for you, God looks at you and he smiles on you. He loves you. He delights in you, and that's that's the grace that we find within the bigger picture of a God who does and will judge sin. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in worship together. God, we thank you that you love us and you've shown grace to us in Jesus. We pray that you would teach us when, when we sin to just throw ourselves upon Jesus, the advocate, the one who speaks up for us, the one who takes away our sin. We thank you for that grace. We thank you for your mercy. God, we do believe that you are both just and merciful, that you are a God of both grace and judgment. And we thank you that we see that most clearly in the cross. We see that most clearly in Jesus himself. Pray that you'd help us to grow in our trust of you, our love of you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.